In order to fully appreciate the violent reaction of the people of Nazareth against Jesus in the synagogue on the Sabbath, today's gospel reading, we have to contextualize the accusation Jesus was making against them. They had stubbornly rejected something fundamental to the nature of God and to their identity as God's people. And Jesus was calling them on it. So a little lesson to contextualize it in redemptive history will be helpful. You know, I think one of the things we have really gained from uh, at Redeemer and Steve, the other Father Steve's uh, time here is his rich experience living in Israel. And when he preaches often, what he will do is he says he's going to teach us 30 minutes of Jewish history, of the history of the Jewish people, or 30 seconds. It's always more like 30 minutes, but um, <laughs> you've never done it in 30 seconds, you know, but it is, it is good. So um, I will tell you right up front, this is going to take longer than 30 seconds, uh, but I think it will be helpful uh, to contextualize what happened in the synagogue that day. You see, before the beginning, in the sense that we know it, I think that's probably going back as far uh, as we need to, but God existed as we, Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The one God is also an equally they, and they were and are always together, always loving each other, and always cooperating with the Father initiating, the Son complying, and the Spirit executing the will of both, which is His will also. I can't explain this mystery better than that. The only real metaphor we have for eyes becoming thoroughly and permanently we is marriage. But anyone who's been married for a while will agree with St. Paul that that's kind of a mystery too. The Trinity were and are entirely fulfilled. They were not and are not lonely. They did not and do not need anything from outside themselves. And yet, out of that blessing, they bless. Because that's what love does. And as so often happens in marriage, which is one of the reasons it's a good metaphor, out of the blessing of loving fellowship and union come a desire to expand the circle of we. Men and women bear children in their image, and the triune God created humankind in their image. I say their because that's what the scriptures say, where we get the first hint of the Trinity in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And God said, let us make man in our own image, in, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And so, in the beginning, God the Father, through the agency of his eternal Son and the power of the Holy Spirit, created out of nothing all that is not God, simply by the word of his command. 
And moment by moment, he holds all things together in that creation by the same word of power so that everything and everyone that comes into existence is his peculiar and loving creation. Everyone. And remarkably, it's all there for God's pleasure. We learn from the revelation of scripture that everything comes from God and everything lives by God's power and everything exists to in some way reveal God's glory. The scriptures tell us too that God's ultimate purpose for humankind is to reveal God's love, to reflect God's image back into the creation that he loves. God is love, and from the outflow of love, God made us his children in order to love and to bless us. This was his pattern and pleasure in purpose in all things from the beginning to create a we that would spend eternity loving each other. This is how it ought to be. But in Genesis 3, we learn of how these first beloved children became enamored of the possibility of not relying on God's loving provision, not living for his glory, and not advancing his purposes in creation. Lured by Satan, they chose rather to reject God's love and to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in order to become like God. And the fall was complete when the desire of man to rule his own life and promote his own glory became so strong that he scorned the wisdom and power and love of God by rejecting God's provision of a flourishing, eternal kind of life. And with Adam, the whole human race fell. Because of that, we all come into the world with a nature that's bent inward. From the dawn of human history, through all generations, the essence of sin has been self-reliance and self-exaltation. But it's not just the overt, selfish, and evil acts of humankind that, as it says in the confession, provokes most justly God's righteous anger but also the seemingly innocuous but insidious self-deification behind these acts that robs God of his glory. Which leads us to a point in history that will prove to be of such tremendous importance as to shape the course of the world, both in this age and in the age to come, because it reflects once again the pattern of the triune God and is at the heart of what ought to be. Us and them, you and me, become we. It's the kind of action scarcely anyone would have thought of who wanted to redeem the world, reclaim creation from the curse of sin, and fill the earth with God's glory. God zeroes in on one person, Abraham, Abram at the time, a worshiper of false gods in the land of Ur, and says with unbelievably backward and forward-looking implications in Genesis 12, 1 and 3, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. Through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. 
This is most often called the Abrahamic covenant. In pure grace, God comes to this undeserving idolater and says with life creating authority, I am going to bless you and through you bring blessing, not just to your family, but to the whole world. And so with that begins the history of the people of God and the redemptive story of all mankind. Do you see the we thinking, the pattern of the triune God, the outflow of love being once again to broaden the circle of we? The purpose of blessing being to bless the other, the outsider. God is once again speaking into existence what ought to be. Unfortunately, another darker pattern also emerges over and over again. Abraham's children turn inward because they're human. They forget their purpose to be a blessing to the whole world. And over and over again, God sends judges and kings and prophets to remind them. And occasionally they repent and renew that vision of we, blessed to be a blessing. But mostly they don't listen. Until one day, some 3,500 years after Abraham, when God uses outsiders, the Babylonians, to get their attention. Jerusalem is destroyed and most of the people are carried into a 70-year exile for a paradigm shift. By the way, fascinatingly, eminent sociologist and philosopher Thomas Kuhn in 1962 in the classic work, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, coined the phrase, we didn't have it before this, paradigm shift. Paradigm, of course, is just a way of seeing things. Most individuals cannot make a paradigm shift after the age of 50. And in culture, amazingly, he says, it takes around 75 years for a paradigm shift. How long, how long, were, the Babylon, or how long were they in exile in Babylon? Uh, over 100 years. Was it 70? Was it, was it 70 years? Well, he didn't make my point for me. <laughs> oh. Either way, it's amazing when science catches up to scripture. God took them out so that they would have a paradigm shift. And into that 70-year <clears throat> exile steps the prophet Jeremiah. And what I find particularly intriguing here is something he establishes right from the very beginning of Jeremiah's prophetic ministry. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, which we read today. Now the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet for, for Israel. No, for the nations. And he goes on in verses 9 and 10 to say, Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you apart this day for the nations and for the kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to build and to plant. And so determined is God that his children catch this vision of thinking we, that he actually makes their blessing now contingent on blessing the other. 
When some of the leaders and other prophets were insisting that the Babylonian exile would be brief, Jeremiah assures him, uh, assures them otherwise. You're going to be there for a while, so settle in. In Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And then, shockingly, the next verse. But seek the flourishing of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its flourishing, you will find your flourishing. This verse so amazingly captures the story, the heart of God for the whole world, and is at the heart of, by the way, of Redeemer's shared vision to proclaim and promote the gospel, giving ever more time, talent, and treasure to seeking the flourishing of our neighbors. Who are our neighbors? The people we can't avoid, believing or not. Them. But think about it. With the choice of Abraham, a worshiper of false god, the triune God's covenant with him to bless him and his offspring in order to bless not just them but the whole world, and Jeremiah's command to the exile to seek first the flourishing of their captors, God thinks we, and he has since the beginning, Okay, so this is all prelude and context for the violent reaction toward Jesus in his hometown. He's returned to Nazareth after making a name for himself in Capernaum. And as was his habit, yes, Jesus went to church. He goes to the synagogue on the Sabbath where he was asked to read and comment on the scriptures. And what he does is almost incredible. He, he nearly incites a riot, and he does it intentionally. They give him the scroll of Isaiah the prophet to read from, and he chooses what is today chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. Now, this part we read last week. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he goes on to say, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Which is great, because they, living under the boot of the Roman Empire, are the poor and the oppressed. So, what happened next really shouldn't come as a surprise. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. We're back in, in uh, Luke now. This totally fit their us versus them paradigm. So far, so good. But then he says something totally unexpected. Inexplicable if you want to if you want to build a following. He tells two stories from the Old Testament that fly right in the face of all their deeply held beliefs and a priori assumptions, their paradigm. 
In fact, he could hardly have been more offensive to them. And he knows what their response is going to be because he says in verse 24, in truth, I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. In other words, sure, you love me now while I match your assumptions of what Messiah will do and what his kingdom will be like, but wait. And so he tells a story taken from 1 Kings 17. In truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, and the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the, the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. God passes over all the ethnic Jews to bring miraculous blessing to a foreign Gentile from Sidon. And he tells the story without softening or explanation. There were many poor widows in Israel, but God blessed an outsider, one of them. But wait, there's more. Verse 27, taken from 2 Kings 5. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Again, all of the Jews God might have chosen to heal of leprosy, of all the Jews he might, God might have uh, chosen to heal of leprosy, he chose the Syrian commander of an enemy army, one of them. And these two stories are absolutely not lost on Nazareth. God is loving exactly the wrong people. Verses 28 through 30, when they heard all these things in the synagogue, they were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down off the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Oh, they got it, and it made them murderous. Why? Because in that tense cultural and existential moment, they lost the plot of God's redemptive story, which was through them to bless the whole world. Even in the case of the Babylonians, their enemies, their oppressors, they were living a different story, a story shaped more by circumstance than scripture more by feeling than by faith. For them, the paradigm was zero-sum, win-lose, either-or, us-them. The violent reaction of the people of Nazareth seems jarring to us, doesn't it? Jesus simply says something they don't like, something that challenges their paradigm, and they try to throw him off a cliff. We are, in our day, of course, far more enlightened and civil and kind than that. Except we're not. Social media much? There are some real parallels here to our time. Because we have, in our cultural and existential moment, even in the church, largely succumbed to a kind of tribalism and us-them belief every bit as ugly as what we read in today's gospel. And if someone says something that seriously challenges or maybe even just marginally challenges our a priori assumptions, our paradigms, often informed primarily 
by intentionally divisive media and political echo chambers that tell only one side of a story. We can react every bit as violently as the people of Nazareth, murderously, actually, if you take the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount seriously. Matthew 5, 21 and 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. <clears throat> Steve and I were just talking about this at lunch Friday. But my greatest concern as a pastor, I, the thing that literally keeps me awake nights, is that in our tense cultural and existential moment, only exacerbated by two years of social quarantine. We're at risk of losing the plot of God's redemptive story, which is now through us, the spiritual heirs of Abraham, and through the gospel of Jesus Christ to bless the whole world. The gospel is central. It's what unites us and animates us and impels us. The gospel is the main thing, not the zeitgeist, the gospel. And so we must unite, or maybe more precisely, reunite around the gospel. For the, the capital C church and for our little local community, it's the plot line we simply cannot lose. But in our day, this this is a huge challenge because the gospel doesn't fit any of our current cultural paradigms about human nature, the depth of our need, or our total inability to save ourselves. And the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I want to say that again. This is not original with me, by the way. Tim Keller wrote this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, and yet at the very same time are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's the story. And it is unbelievably good news to a culture that is dislocated and disintegrated and diseased. I hope it's good news to you. You know, actually, the gospel is a simple and straightforward story, but it has profound and multifaceted implications for how we live out our lives, both individually and as a community. So how do we unite or reunite around it? I don't know all of the ways, but I'd like to suggest at least a simple starting point. One of the vestry's four priorities for 2022 doesn't sound lofty, but it might be the most important of them. It's to reconnect as a community. 
I don't know if you caught this in, in that first hymn that we sang this morning. And by the way, we did not work this out. Um, but the God of grace and God of glory, it is, it is about us. Grant us wisdom. Grant us courage. Because wisdom and courage comes to us in community when we are with brothers and sisters that hold us up and hold us accountable and encourage us and help us live out the implications of the gospel. This, this collect that we prayed this morning, again, I, I hadn't really looked at it before I started preparing the sermon. Oh God, you know that we are set in the midst of many grave dangers and because of the frailty of our nature, we cannot always stand upright. Grant that your strength and protection may support us in all dangers and carry us through every temptation. What has God given us to help us stand upright? It's not just on our own. We do it in community with brothers and sisters that love us. So we are going to have some small groups in our church that are going to meet from around Ash Wednesday through Holy Week. Because our goal is that we begin to come together and gather around and unite around the gospel so that that be the thing that informs us, that be the thing that shapes us, so that we grow in community, so that we learn to love and trust each other enough to challenge each other's assumptions, and that we learn to live out our story God's redemptive story more fully. Now, all of you received uh, a survey on Friday, a link to a survey. I filled it out on Friday. It took me about a minute and 30 seconds. So please, please, that will help us so much as we move forward. Um, but I think that's a good first step for us, is to reconnect and consider how we might, cons how we might spur each other on to love and good works around the gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.